Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star, and the namesake. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He's a best-selling author. His uh, most recent bestseller is The Dying Citizen. And I, he's also the author of another great military bestseller. We've talked about this in the past, The Second World Wars. I throw this in here early because Father's Day is coming up. And that is a great book for uh, dad. So is The Dying Citizen. Uh, I'm Jack Fowler. I said that already. I am uh, the, um, what am I? I'm the author of Civil Thoughts for uh, American Philanthropic, amongst other things. We'll talk about that a little uh, later. Uh, there's a lot to talk about on this podcast. We are recording on Saturday, uh, June 4th, and I believe this podcast will be up and out there on Thursday the 9th. And we're going to talk about something that started on June 1st while Victor was away in Israel, and that is Pride Month. And we'll do that right after these important messages. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, my friend, um, I know you've seen this. I have a feeling most of our listeners have seen this, but I'll just very quickly, they're all over the interwebs, social media, as an image, is the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is celebrating Pride. Month of June, it's LGBTQI, whatever. I don't know if there are any letters not in this plus, uh, but the Pride Month image that the Marine Corps put out was a, a helmet, and it had... Um, bullets strapped to, to the pride flag colored bullets. And uh, what does it say here? During the month of June, the Marine Corps takes pride in recognizing and honoring the contributions of our LGBTQ service members. We remain committed to fostering an environment free from discrimination and defend the values of treating all equally with dignity and 
respect. Victor, this got a ton of attention on uh, Twitter and other Facebook, other social media platforms. This happened while you were uh, coming back from Israel. I'm sure you've seen it, Victor. Uh, you know, more woke military. Um, is is it is this just a weird anecdote, or is this uh, symbolic of something bigger? What are your thoughts? I guess the first thought is what prompts people to do these things. So who was the major colonel, one star, who came up with the idea? These are the different colored bullets that represent the colors of the pride flag and a clip or something. Does that mean that the pink or the green or the yellow one is more lethal than the other one? Or does it mean when one of them hits and blows apart somebody, there's a different, I don't know, significance because a gay person shot the gun? Is that what they're saying? But in the larger context, what we're seeing is the, the you know, it's sort of like the commissariat, commissars in the Soviet Union. I've used that comparison before, Jack. And what's what I mean by that is ideology, when it's applied to the military, comes at the expense of lethality or military efficacy. Ask yourself this, Jack, and everybody listening. If you were, let's say, I don't know, full colonel, and you were in Afghanistan, and two things were known about you. One, you saw the, the deteriorating situation, and impromptu or without an order, you took the initiative and made a corridor around Bagram Air Base, and you saved it. At least you saved it as an orderly place, and you saved the equipment. And it was due to your heroism and initiative. But at the same time, that week, Somebody had come to you and said, we want to have, just as we have a pride flag flying from the embassy and a gender studies at the Kabul University, we want to have a marine pride uh, day and we want to have these different colored bullets. You said, are you serious? What would happen to him? Would he be rewarded for saving lives and showing military brilliance? Or would it be more likely he'd be punished for suggesting that he was intolerant of gay agendas, I, and I'll leave the answer to the audience, but you can see what I'm getting at. All of these ideological distractions come at the expense of military lethality, and we saw that in Afghanistan, the most serious, the serious and humiliating military defeat since 1975, when we flew off the embassy of Saigon and abandoned Vietnam. And so this is what is happening. And this comes on top of, Jack, of the politicalization, as we've talked ad nauseum, of the officer class. So when you have officers, uniform code of military justice, and calling them their commander-in-chief Nazi-like or Mussolini or comparing border policies to Auschwitz, this is the logical result of a military that is completely politicize. And, you, and we saw that, of course, with Lloyd Austin and the testimony of Mark Milley. Mark Milley always gives lectures, remember, Jack, about how he's, he's devoted to the Constitution. He's not a political general. This is the guy who took it upon his own initiative when Trump was president to call his Chinese counterpart to warn him, essentially, that Trump, I guess, was more unstable than the Chinese leadership. Or when he had a normal photo op with the president, then sort of backed away and suggested he'd been used and he shouldn't do that. So he was the most political chairman uh, of the Joint Chiefs we've seen in, in decades. And yet he's giving lectures about the constitutionality of his position. 
And when you add both of their testimonies about white supremacy, and we've talked about that before, it's really scary. So this pride, if, you, if it didn't happen, you'd have to invent it is what I'm trying to struggle to say. Um, yeah, Victor, it's, uh, it's fun, not funny, but I was, I was watching an old TV show. I stumbled across it. It's called The Lieutenant. It was done by Gene Roddenberry before he did Star Trek. It's an hour long show. Gosh, I forget the name of the main actor. He was in uh, 2001. Um, anyway, it's about the Marine Corps. Yeah, and, I gosh, remember that. Oh, my gosh. It is so night and day. So night and day. The attitude today to the leader from the leadership. I'm sure, you know, the Marines and the Marines. I, I'm not a Marine, <laughs> I, but my father-in-law and others I know would just be shocked by didn't that only last like a year one year it only lasted a year but it was terrific and there show. was a guy the guy that was in that episode of star trek yeah yes remember the guy that was paralyzed uh the yeah. former captain gary um what was his name i'm gonna yeah that's it wasn't 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 he the guy that was in the chair and the star it trek yeah, yes so it must have yeah he was the the star of that and I remember it, I, I oh, watched yeah, it, was, it. I've watched it. Believe it or not, I've seen it at reruns on uh, cable TV. But you're right. The culture is just antithetical today. And I, I, and I, you're absolutely right to say that at the captain level downward, uh, things probably have not changed. But what's happening is once you politicize a organization, particularly a military organization, then by needs, everybody makes the necessary corrections and adjustments. And so if you're going to be a lifetime Marine officer and you're, I don't know, a Lieutenant Colonel and you wanna be Colonel, and then the filtration process narrows and narrows and you wanna be a one star, and that, then you have to assume the dominant ideology. And if you're a Maverick with a Mike Flynn attitude or something or a George Patton, you're not gonna, you're not gonna make it. And these, these systems, are orthodox anyway and hierarchical. So it's hard enough without blatant politicalization to accommodate people that are forceful and unorthodox. But now it's, it's all of military efficacy is being subordinated to political ideology. We, we've talked about um, the Soviet army in the 1930s and the young Soviet army that went into Poland in 20 and 21, or the Soviet army that went into Finland in right. 39 and 40, or the Soviet army that divided Poland up, and barely met its demarcation points, or the Soviet army for the first six months of Operation Barbarossa showed what happened when you liquidate officer corps or you put psychophants in positions of power. Same thing was true ultimately of the Nazi hierarchy and any totalitarian system in which uh, merit is not the adjudicator of promotion and tenure and office among the officer corps is not is ultimately going to you're ultimately going to see something predictable like the afghanistan debacle of course that was one other wrinkle we haven't talked about that was all concocted because of Joe Biden's dream of having a huge celebration that he was the president 20 years after 9-11 that finally ended the Afghan war. Right. So he was telling people all of July and August what a great army the Afghan uh, forces were as a way of hiding the truth from the American people. Victor, um, 
since we're talking about crazy things, let's talk a little about AOC. You mentioned something to me before we began recording that she is now claiming a Native American, Lakota Sioux roots. And, you know, on top of that, just like, you know, Joe Biden, Catholic Joe Biden, also one of his many lies was that he he also used to regularly attend Baptist, Black Baptist uh, services when he was a teenager. It, some people just can't help get into this crap. Well, uh, AOC, what is she? She's Puerto Rican. She's also claimed heritage Black yes. and Jewish. And, and now and, she's a Native American, too. Yes. To boot. Now she's been adopted by the Lakota Sioux, she says, and she's getting yeah. back to her Native American. She's everything and nothing. And so it's, it's just a career uh, description. She is a marginalized person. Uh, and, you know, this is a barista who grew up in, in your territory, right, Jack, in Connecticut? She actually, she grew up in the Bronx. That is oh, my true territory. That's your but, true. Uh, but didn't she migrate yeah. to your secondary uh, home? Uh, no, I think, I think Westchester. She, West. she, yeah, north, north of the city, but uh, as opposed to east of it. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So she's, she's not a child of deprivation is what I'm getting at. Like everybody else in America, the number, they understand the number of victimizers is too small to accommodate the number of victimized. And so everybody, again, to use that phrase, has to make the necessary identity adjustments. And we're gonna, whether it's Elizabeth Warren and her high cheekbones or Ward Church and his, you know, his beads and buckskin, or right. Sean, Sean King and his, I don't know, his mysterious parentage suddenly, or Rachel Dolezal, remember her? And the head right. of the oh NAACP, and all of them. And yeah. The millions of other people who understand that identity is is the touchstone of the American experience today, and they're going to find the proper identity or craft it or invent it if necessary. Right. Well, you got. I remember from a long time ago there were two very couldn't be more Irish than these two Boston firemen. They claimed they were they were Hispanic or part black, whatever they used to get promotions, but you know, they understood long time ago that this is the game. And even someone like her, right. I guess if she, she could add, she's, you know, something on the sexual front, one of the LGBT to, to so I'm a woman, I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm Indian. I'm, uh, uh, but when you have so many identities, what are you? Yeah. Well, you're, you're everything, as I said, and, and then you have no identity except I guess the subtext that's not spoken is, all of these multiple identities have the common denominator that you're not so-called white. And that was, again, the great achievement for the left right. wing of Barack Obama when he took that rather arcane term diversity and he mainstreamed it by redefining marginalized or oppressed groups as non-white. So suddenly it was no longer a 12, 88% binary between African-Americans and so-called white people, but anybody the Cuban American aristocrat, the Nigerian doctor, the Argentine professor, you name it, right. the South Korean orthodontist, all of them now had claims against the majority culture as being diverse. Right. And it really supplanted affirmative action. It wasn't based on any historical claims of uh, bias or deprivation or victimhood or contemporary citation of ongoing racism directed toward these people. And yet, that's where we are today. Yeah. Everybody's got to be diverse. I think it's like a game of poker too. Like Victor, you know, oh, you have a pair of kings. Well, I have a, I have a full house. It's this intersectionality. And intersectional. That's it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's um, let's talk about something that's very important to you, and that's uh, Strategica. As we've, we've mentioned in the past, Strategica is an online journal at the Hoover Institution that you oversee. You're essentially the, the, the editor-in-chief. And every few weeks, uh, the, you, you take historians, uh, uh, take a, a, a look at current events through, through the eyes of historians, and you have a major piece, and then you have a couple of comments. And what you've tackled now at Strategica issue 79, and that's Strategica at its free. I suggest our listeners check it out at Hoover Institution's website. It's uh, border security. And the lead piece uh, is by Williamson Murray, who gives a, a historical view of what have borders meant through history, seem to be much more important and defining and uh, of national security implications in the 20th century. I may have misread it, but Victor, you have his piece and you have uh, Moyer and Nadia Shadlow are two respondents uh, or complementary pieces on border security. So would you talk about this uh, issue 79 of Strategica? Well, Williamson Murray was arguing that border security was integral to Rome, at least until the fourth and fifth centuries AD when it started to fall apart. And that in the subsequent two millennia of Western civilization, the idea of a border either solidified or waned depending on the type of political organization, say the middle middle ages or something when there were not secure borders. But the idea of having a powerful nation state, whether ancient Rome or modern France was contingent on having clear and defined borders. And what Borders said is everybody within here have the same language, the same values, the same agendas, and we're not able uh, to incorporate everybody within this. And then when people tried to expand those borders, like Napoleon, for example, or Hitler, it was very difficult to do that. So Borders is a, it's a, it's a sign of humility that we can promote democracy if we're Americans and the American constitutional system within our borders. But if we don't have borders, we're just simply not able to assimilate, amalgamate, integrate millions of people that come from vastly different systems. And here's the key, in perpetual motion insight toward the United States, it's not a one-off Eastern European or Italian-American experience. It's constant because you have no border. And that was sort of what I took away from Williamson's essay. But the other essays are pretty much explaining both contemporarily why it's important for Ukraine to have borders. And when you have a netherland and the Donbass between Russia and Ukraine, what is it? And that's what the fight is now coming down to. What, what defines Ukraine or what defines Russia? And one side's going to win or lose. There's either going to be a Ukrainian border that includes it or excludes it or there's going to be an independent country or a puppet state, but it's going to be centered around the idea of borders. I don't know why we don't get that. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but if somebody goes back and reads the speeches delivered at the 1992 and 96 Clinton Democratic Conventions, you will hear impassioned speeches by Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Nancy Pelosi about the need to patrol and secure the southern border. 
Now they did it for political reasons that it was when there was still a union movement in things like building trades and and uh, you know auto workers. Cesar Chavez, yeah, Cesar Chavez, and they yeah, yeah operate. Cesar Chavez sent armed you know, people with clubs down to the border to right. physically stop illegal aliens. So that was then. This is now. We we live in a borderless society, and so. And it filters down. So when I walk, I mean, what's happening down at the border, whether in California or in Texas, if I walk around my little 42-acre almond orchard, once a month, I'm going to see somebody walking across uh, who doesn't speak a word of English, doesn't uh, understand any of the local customs and traditions about just walking onto somebody's property. And, you know, I... I'm not exaggerating, Jack, but about three years ago, I was walking through the orchard, and it was the weirdest thing in the world. There was a dugout and a piece of uh, board and dirt over it, and it was a person um, from Mexico living in a hole, and he put like a trap door, and I walked up to him, and I said, you know, this is very, in broken Spanish, there's a tractor coming through here. They're going to crush you. And then I got very upset and I talked to people and they said that he had done the same thing at another person. Another time I went through an irrigation ditch. These irrigation ditches are open. Right. And there were whole families, uh, you know, bathing their children in this right. mossy irrigation dish and taking detergent, which is not good for the crops and pouring Tide and things into it and then hand washing and beating the clothes and hanging them up. So this is a, a new experience yeah. when you don't have borders. And how do you acclimatize everybody? I, I don't know. I don't know who they are. I don't know how they came here. I have no intrinsic objection if they came here legally, right. but there's no vetting process. I don't know if the person that was living in the hole had been a murder in Southern Mexico or upstanding mayor of the town. I have no idea. Yeah. I, but not that I need to know, but I need to know somebody in the United States knows. And I know that somebody in the United States doesn't know. Okay. That's a good point, Jack, because I think one thought that sort of ties up everything we've been talking about recently is not just they don't care, but they don't care about your existential fate. Right. If you're in Los Angeles, as I think happened lately, and there's a hit and run and somebody hits you, and because they're undocumented, they leave the scene of the accident, and your child dies or you're injured, Mr. Gascon doesn't care. He's not going to prosecute that person because he doesn't right. care about you. And if somebody comes into your house and shoots you and was let out just hours before, as a they don't care. They being the nomenclatura that are not subject to the consequences of their own ideology. We have created a, a bicoastal, for the large part, elite. And they're like no other elite in the history of civilization. They've got more money. They've got more influence. They've got more power. But whether but their soul brothers are medieval kings or the aristocracy of the landed gentry in France and, and Britain about 18 you know, 1750, they don't care. They don't care. Victor, uh, I'm, I'm pulling a fast one here, but uh, there is an election, a mayoral primary coming up in Los Angeles. I should have looked this up before we, we uh, recorded here, but it seems to me that there's a, a, a non-liberal who may 
prevail. Have you followed that that race at all? I haven't really. I, I just, you know, I I know that I think her name is London Breed. She's typical of the San Francisco culture that's led to the disaster. And now, unlike some of the more harder left uh, candidates, she's trying to you know, make right. up for lost time. But yeah. the, the whole state is run by a, a two or three zip codes. These are, the, this is, these are the zip codes that produce Kamala Harris, Nancy right. Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, Gavin Newsom. And they come out of a particular milieu. It's sort of like the plantation class of the old South. About 300,000 people ran the entire 11 million person old South. Right. And they were incestuous. They were interconnected. They were fabulously rich. And that's who runs California. It's the people who have ties, money ties uh, with Silicon Valley, $6 trillion in market capitalization and political ties uh, with Sacramento. And they, they run the state. And, but I think that we, as we saw with that the school board recall right. election, I think there's there's something in the air. It's uh, right. there's a change that people said. You know that this whatever this is, it's hard to describe what it is, but it cannot go on. Yeah. And this uh, chase of Boudin can't go on because if he goes on, too many people who are important are going to ultimately and finally and eventually get killed or maimed or their children are. They don't care if it happens to us, but eventually this stuff gets so out of control that it starts to lap up in Presidio Heights or Knob Hill, you know, Pacific Heights or Mill Valley, out places like that. And right. it cannot go on when that happens. And you're starting to see, I noticed, Jack, um, I'm in an area where both the Democratic and Republican candidates for state assembly, state senate, Congressional candidates are, for the most part, Hispanic, Mexican-American. I don't like the word Hispanic. They're Mexican-American. But what's interesting in the campaign literature that inundates my mailbox is that the Democratic candidates, I mean, they, they mouth things like climate change and all that, but they all, the, their number one selling point for their candidacy is they're tough on crime. I'm a crime fighter. I am, you know, Hilario Gonzalez. And I'm for expanded uh, social services. I'm expanded community services, but I'm a crime fighter. That's new. I'm a crime fighter. And that tells me that they're terrified that the Mexican-American voter is terrified of what they've done and is going to vote non-democratic. So now they're posing at this 11th hour, they're crime fighter. Victor, uh, I want to talk a little more about uh, California. And by the way, the, the guy I was thinking of, and I just looked him up while you were talking, is uh, uh, Rick Caruso, a billionaire Republican a, turned Democrat. That's in uh, L.A., right? Or yeah, no? that's the L.A. Yeah. race. Yeah. So uh, we can talk about that uh, uh, next time we record. But before, before we talk more about California, just back to Strategica quickly. Would you just tell us who is... Um, Williamson Murray. Uh, um, what's what is his uh, his strength as a historian? I've known him. I think he's known um, to his friends and colleagues as Wick W I C K. He was a student in the late 1960s, early 70s of Donald Kagan at Yale. That's how I met him. 
But uh, I think as early as the late 80s, early 90s, uh, there was something called the Cambridge Illustrated History of Warfare, where I think Wick did four chapters and I did three, and so we got to be friends. But he's been a, a distinguished military historian, and I think he's best known among military historians as the the top English-speaking, English-writing historian of the Luftwaffe. And, and he, he co-authored a book, The War to Be Won, about World War II. It's very good. And uh, okay. he's, he's just a storehouse of knowledge. And he, he was the one that really made the argument that what collapsed Germany was, um, and this was very controversial at the time, we had the idea that, that strategic bombing was a failure. Right. And he articulated very carefully that it was an utter failure in daylight unescorted bombing raids in early 1942, up until uh, early 44, mid-1944. But at that point, with the onset of fighter escort and improved tactics, and more importantly, the attrition of the Luftwaffe, in other words, they were bombing airfields, they were bombing air plants, they were... Uh, P-51s were shooting down BF-109s and Focke-Wolf's 190s, and there were poorly trained pilots. So the German pilot of 1944 was as poor in comparison to his American counterpart as he had been excellent in 1942. Right. So the, the, And then he made the other subtle argument that, tragically, the expertise that allowed America to hone their skills was accrued through trial and error. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing in 42. In mid-1944, B-17 squadrons knew exactly what they were going to do. And he was suggesting that, tragically, they went through hell to acquire that knowledge. But once they acquired that knowledge, they destroyed uh, the Luftwaffe. Mm -hmm. And that meant no air cover for German ground forces, which facilitated the you know, less than a year from the beaches of Normandy to right. the destruction of the Third Reich. So he's a very good historian. Okay. Oh, thanks for that. Uh, Victor, we'll, we'll move back to uh, California as a topic, and, and we'll talk about uh, something we've talked about before, water. And we'll do that right after this important message. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We are recording on Saturday, June 4th. This uh, program is being broadcast on Thursday the 9th. A couple of 
points. One is uh, everything Victor writes is found at victorhanson.com. And you should subscribe to the site because Victor frequently writes uh, exclusive pieces. They're called Ultra that can only be read at victorhanson.com and only be read by subscribers. It's $5 a month or $50 for the year. There is a lot of Ultra material. You will regret not doing it. You will not regret doing it. So please subscribe uh, there. Victor, this, this is irrelevant to everything we we're talking about, but I had just wanted to mention this. While you were away and during Memorial Day, I was listening to, to our friend Megan Kelly, who's got a great podcast, and she did a two-hour interview with Dakota Meyer, who had been awarded the Medal of Honor. And it was just a fascinating and riveting and really inspiring discussion. So uh, anyone who's, who's uh, interested in some recent military history or in a display of true heroism, uh, not that Dakota Meyer considers himself a hero, but I would suggest go back and find that Memorial Day podcast for the Me Megyn Kelly uh, show. It was, it's uh, really good stuff. So um, Victor... Our friends at California Policy Center, they do great work fighting the labor unions in the, in the state. It's kind of, kind of a you know, David and Goliath situation there. But from time to time, they take on the water issue. Uh, Ed Ring, who's the former president of a California Policy Center, has just commenced a 10-part uh, series. And I, 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 we've talked about water before. I'm, I'm curious about what the situation is on the literally on the ground uh, there in in early June. But I do want to restate very quickly before you comment, Victor, that people like me on the East Coast totally. Uh, I mean, I've been I've been attuned to this now, but totally ignorant that water is an is an issue that it matters that it matters to much of the country. Um, we think of water, we turn on the faucet, and it's there. If no one considers it uh, some kind of a commodity or a resource, it's just a thing that's there. So this is kind of East Coast arrogance about water that is night and day from what you and fellow residents of California experience. The food that's on our table here in Milford, Connecticut, a lot of it comes from the Central Valley. Uh, you, you would think Washington policymakers would pay more attention uh, to water as uh, as the important issue it deserves to be. Anyway, Victor, that's my little spiel. But uh, what's what's happening right now in California with the water situation? Well, we're, we're in a another drought. We didn't have a drought two and a half years ago. We had one of the wettest years in history. We had one of the wettest Decembers in history. I went up to seventy two hundred feet to a house I have in the Sierra, and my wife and I spent hours uh snow blowing and clearing all of the dry the area around the house it was just i think it was six feet of snow but then it didn't rain the the high pressure area uh solidified off the coast of california and those the storms that come from japan and australia and they come across the pacific in the winter were diverted northward up to alaska or washington so we're in a drought but the thing to remember about it is for some reason jack I don't, I'm being facetious, but two-thirds of Californians live where one-third of the precipitation is. They do not want to live up in Eureka, where it's wet as 
can be. They want to live on the picturesque California coast from La Jolla to Berkeley. There is no water there. There's very few aquifers. There's no snowpack. And it's fine if you want to put a million people there or 2 million or 3 million in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. I mean, they do have some aquifers. They had Hetch Hetchy. They had first generation water projects to bring it. But if you want to accommodate a lot of people, you need something like the California Water Project. That is to go up north and tap the American, the Feather River, the Kalamath, all of those rivers and bring them down through the California Aqueduct. Okay. The problem is that our grandfathers were geniuses and envisioned that one day California would be as it is today, 41 million people. So they had a staged development of building reservoirs up in the high Sierras, up in the middle Sierras, up in the low foothills and aqueduct repair and the peripheral canal, etc. What I'm getting at is they had a plan to make the impossible continue to work, i.e. a desert that is the richest agricultural state in the union. Fresno County, where I'm speaking from, is the richest county as far as the value of its produce in the United States. They had a plan to make that sustainable from when they did it, 15 million people to 20 to 25 to 30 to 35 to 40. But they didn't count on one thing, the rise of the progressive mind and the idea that all the affluence, all the leisure that they enjoy was their birthright, and they could tamper with nature. And that by tamper with nature, I mean not build any new reservoirs since 1982-83. New Malona's Reservoir, I think, was the last major non-City of Los Angeles project. Or let out 80% of the water on a normal year out to the Delta to make sure that the Delta smelt is oxygenated. Or cancel, uh, you know, cut off water uh, for that have long contractual agreements with the California Water Project and give it to uh, for other purposes other than recreation or flood control hydroelectric power. And I mean by that is turning, making sure that rivers are 19th century scenic and beautiful. I, I, I think that's a noble idea as well as spending $50,000 per salmon to make sure the salmon get back up to the Sierra. But you can't do that with 40 million people in a drought, if you'd never finish these projects, and now we're fighting over, I mean, they just canceled another, um, you know, seawater conversion distillation project. So we're not going to do that anymore. These are stopgap measures. I mean, they're good for municipal water usage, but the idea that you're going to convert seawater to freshwater on a massive scale for 40 million people and agriculture is, is very hard. So what we're looking at, to distill this conversation is that the richest state in the union in agricultural terms that gives us about a hundred crops, everything from cotton to nuts, to tomatoes, to peaches, to grapes, uh, to rice, to any, that's not gonna be there. We're gonna start to see massive acreages taken out of production. And right about, if you look at the state, and you have a dividing line right down the middle longitudinally, everything to the east that's within the Sierra uh, Nevada watershed will survive for a while because they have a, an aquifer from eons of snowmelt. But everything to the west, 
where the water table can be a thousand feet and more and is dependent on vast water transfers from Northern California, they're not gonna get that anymore, both due to policy and to the drought this year. And so that land, if it doesn't have uh, an ability to pump down 1500 feet and get a subgrade quality of water at very low volume, they're gonna go out of production. And you can already see it right now. And then you add into the equation that California has 1.2 million acres of almonds and almond prices are at a historical low. They're not break even. So why would somebody pump at $1,000 or $2,000 plus per acre feet to lose money? And so you're already seeing vast numbers of almonds going out of production. A lot of people will say good, but that land could be used for other crops. That's what agriculture is. It shifts to market realities. When there's a good price, people overplant. And when the prices are bad, they pull and adjust. It's not going to happen is what I'm trying to say. And food prices are going to go up. Just to give you an idea of what's happening, I drove, uh, we drove on the way home from San Francisco airport uh, in Palo Alto. We drove home yesterday and we stopped at a very famous Casa de Fruta on 152. I grew up as it was a little fruit stand. Now it's a huge complex of, I think you've been there, Jack, before. It's got service stations, it's got restaurants, it's got kitty uh, amusement, it's got everything, yeah. trailer park, but it's still famous for its fresh produce. I walked in, it's pretty crowded summer day, there was almost nobody buying fresh fruit. I thought, this is weird. And there was a couple of people that were patrolling. I'd never seen that before. I thought, well, wow, we don't have shoplifting laws in California, but apparently they were looking. And you know why they were looking? I looked at cherries. Take a guess what cherries were per pound at a, a wholesale. Eleven. You what? Eleven dollars. What were peaches? Four ninety-five. What were grapes? Five ninety-five. I've never seen anything like that. Oh I know it's the early season, but nobody could afford it. Nobody was buying them, but I think people were afraid that people were going to go in there and just start eating them right, right off the, the shelf. So we're seeing things, as we've talked about in an earlier broadcast, that we've never seen before. To get people to pick a grape is about $18 to $22 an hour. And to get water is about seven times the usual cost. And we're the most expensive continental state in terms of kilowatt charges right. in the United right. States. So you're telling these farmers, your labor is gonna go up three times. Your power has tripled over the last 20 years. The regulations have tripled and you're not gonna get any surface water if you don't have an aquifer. Gosh. And the people who are surviving that find that there's still a demand. Guess what? People like to eat healthy, fresh fruit. And almost all of it comes, not all of it, but a great deal of it, especially in a long growing season, comes from California. And so I think we're going to see things, as we keep saying, when I wrote, and I keep referencing that column, we're going to see things this summer and fall we've never seen before. And right. I think we're getting to the point right now that the typical American middle-class family cannot afford a steak, a ribeye right. steak, can't afford right. it. Maybe on festive occasions, they can cook some chuck steaks. Uh, but, and they're not going to be able to afford fresh grapes or peaches or plums or nectarine. I don't think they're going to be able to afford it. 
And that's, that's really disturbing because at a, in, in a much poorer time that I grew up, the 1950s, that was sort of an American birthright that you had fresh, nutritious, clean food right. that was the lowest price in the world. And that was the basis of the middle-class family existence. That there was affordable housing and affordable food and that freed up the rest of your family budget for you know entertainment education transportation but that's not going to happen anymore we're, we're going backwards and again like you and i keep banging the drum it's by intent right is, you know the era of limited limits limits yeah. space didn't have to have planet earth right. yeah. lower your expectation wow well um victor uh that's discouraging and depressing um I want, again, folks who are listening, I hope you're still listening, California Policy Center, that is the website. I think it's Cal Policy Center is the actual, you can Google it. And uh, Ed Ring is the author of this 10-part uh, series on the water. First and even two if you don't, come out, haven't they? Yeah, first two. They're very yeah, good. I, they're very well written and they're very well argued and they're very well researched. Yeah, one of the right, one of the second parts is, uh, is this uh, uh, call to limit the use on a household basis and someone is pushing for even like 40 40 gallons per household per day and what there are consequences to that you talk about people should lower their expectations you have long hair good luck taking a shower long enough to shampoo your hair and clean it they don't uh, even understand the washing machines yeah. you know the clothes come out stinky and smelly because you can't use enough water they don't understand that you know, there's certain rules of physics. So I, everybody likes to conserve water, but if you can't flush a bowel movement, you flush twice. And the way sewage systems work is they require a degree of volume to push the solid waste through the, the sewage system. Right. And these are all age-old design truths. And you, we come along and say, on this area, we're going to violate common sense and let water go out or not build dams but then we're going to make it up on the back end by changing the rules of building science and age-old sewage science and it's very hard to do that and that's what we're trying to do and you know that's not going to cut it if you want to save water um about 15% of water is domestic use in California. It's a huge mm -hmm. amount of water, but you're going to have to idle acreage. And I mean, vast amounts of acreage. And right. that's what we're doing. We're starting to see now. I drive across um, the east and west side when I go to work in Palo Alto. And I'm seeing, I either see land that's not being farmed or orchards and vineyards that are being torn out. And, you know, when I grew up, that was called the West Side. And my dad, every once in a while, would say, okay, you boys, let's try out the 22 automatic or semi-automatic, excuse me, or let's go out and shoot stuff. And we drive out to this unchartered wasteland. And there were coyotes and valley fever and tumbleweeds. And most of it wasn't even fenced. And people, you know, there was some pasturage and cattle raising, but it was, it was parched desert. And it was very rich soil, but nobody had any water because the water table is 1,500 feet below the surface in many places. And then John F. Kennedy and B.F. Sisk and all these other, and Jerry Brown's dad, Pat Brown, 
they got together and said, we're going to transfer all this water and stop flooding in the north and turn the west side into a Garden of Eden. And that was pretty operative from 1962 until basically Jerry Brown came upon the scene. And then people said, this is unnatural and we want it to revert. They should remember what happens when it reverts, though. It's uh, kind of like the Australian outback, uh, but it's not a healthy place to live. Right. The water's there, except, uh, well, the water's really now in the Pacific Ocean where it's being allowed to uh, drain out to. Uh, Victor, we have one more topic to talk about, um, and that's a, a piece you've written uh, for American Greatness. It's called Trumpology, and we'll get to that right after this important message. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, you wrote a piece. It would be last week at the time this is being broadcast, two days ago, two days from when we are actually recording. It's called Trumpology, and you're talking about, um, you know, essentially, here's one of the questions, so will Donald Trump run? It has to do with uh, how the catastrophe of Biden's administration has made um, a potential Trump run slash victory in 2024 is um, really made that much more feasible. Uh, but you also talk about um, some of uh, Donald Trump's doings in, in recent primaries. I don't think in here is talk about what happened in Georgia. Well, let's talk about the column itself and your thoughts about where Donald Trump is now, how he's played his hand politically. Uh, what's what you think might be his future? But then I'd also like to talk about separately about uh, the uh, recent Georgia primaries. Not not be, so much because Trump quote unquote lost there. You know, he, he Sonny Perdue, his candidate, lost to um, the um, incumbent governor in the Republican primary. But, but I do think it has some larger implications for for Trump's uh, future. Uh, anyway, Victor, you wrote this piece. Tell us about it. Well, it starts with the assumption that after the January 6th, I'm not going to get into the politics of that, after the January 6th buffoonish takeover riot, whatever you want to call it, and then after the wipeout in Georgia that a lot of people blame Trump, and then the Linwood, um, Sidney Powell, Kraken theatrics, Trump's political capital, despite a fabulous record, was at a low. 
and everybody assumed that Joe Biden was cognizant, cognitively there, and therefore he would take this successful Trump agenda on energy, uh, the economy, the border, foreign policy, and as his is his want as a plagiarizer, he would plagiarize it. Just say, "I did it." Now he tried with the vaccine, but he didn't. Instead, he turned and said, whatever Trump did, I'm gonna do the opposite and destroyed it. And he's now suffering historic, you know, some of these polls, 34, 35% approval rating and independence is even lower, like 23, 24%. It's a disaster. And as people contrast Trump's record with Biden and they see that for all Trump's tweets, would you rather have, uh, you know, affordable gas, a safe border, a coherent foreign policy, and a mad tweeter? Or would you rather have a madman like Joe Biden and a disaster? And so the result of all that, Jack, is that Trump in polls is now beating Biden, and he's beating Harris. Not by a lot, but because of the media. I mean, he'll never beat anybody by a lot because the entire media and our institutional infrastructure is against him but that that's a stunning reversal so then it opens the question is he going to run again and then i i discuss various pros and cons one of the things is that our 70s and 80s are not our the new 50s and 60s as baby boomers say we keep saying i'm 68 and i felt i could just get through omicron like nothing and i can't and i and Donald Trump is going to be 79. And look at the people that are leading our country that are septuagenarians and octogenarians. Dianne Feinstein, 89. Nancy Pelosi, 81. Joe Biden, 79. They're not reassuring uh, affirmations of longevity. And I can get into other people. You'll say, well, how about this person? I, but it's still... Donald Trump's age will be a factor and his health will be a factor too. And so what are the pros and cons of him running? And I think that because of the changing political situation, there's a very good chance that he could run and he could win. Is he going to announce? I think he's going to wait until, as he says, the midterms, and then we're going to watch. If it's a very close midterm, I don't think it will be. There will be calls to say, we can have sunshine without the Trump sun. We can have a DeSantis, we can have a Pompeo, we can have a Tom Cotton, we can have all these people because they're all going to follow the Trump agenda. It's impossible in the party post-Trump to run on Jeb Bush's open borders or to run on accommodating China and the corporate world or not to develop Anwar or to compromise on crime just a different party or the idea that the market always adjudicates and Youngstown, Ohio, you just write it off. That's their bunch of, you know, dopez and that's it. No, that's over with the, the Bush uh, Romney version of the Republican party. So that begs the question then, well, if that's over and Trump institutional, you see there's kind of a paradox, Jack, if he institutionalized Trumpism, then institutionalized means you don't need the guy who did it because he left a framework to people to operate within. And so will that, will that mean that there'll be calls to say, well, we can have a Trump party, but we don't have to have a lightning rod because the left is in retreat. 
So all we need is a guy who fights like Trump, i.e. DeSantis or Pompeo, but doesn't have the personal baggage. That I'm not advocating one viewer or the other before people who listen get mad. I'm just trying to, uh, in the article, I was trying to frame the landscape. And then, of course, others will say, ah, well, you guys told us that with Scott Walker, the ideal governor took on the unions, teachers, et cetera, et cetera. Great right. governor, hands-on experience, and he fizzled on the debate stage. So we don't know what these people will do under pressure. Right. We do know that Trump will fight. So that's the, the, the pro and con of whether he's going to... I think if the midterms are close, he probably won't run. I don't think they will be. If there's a landslide, I think the argument that you have to moderate or you have to win, win independent voters will be less because of the huge dissatisfaction as evidence in the midterms with Joe Biden and the left. And then the question is, as I end the column, there's two things everybody wants. They want the Trump agenda and because they, it got results. I think with one caveat, there has to be monetary discipline. We spent too much money under Trump uh, that we didn't have. But then the question is, we want somebody who fights, that takes on not just the status quo, except the status quo. The woke movement has advanced the country so far to the left, there has to be a correction, not a stasis. They have to bring it back to the middle or center right where the country is. And that means you need somebody who fights. And you might not have to play by the markers of Queensbury rules. They don't want that anymore. They want somebody who fights. But the stakes are so high, they don't want somebody who fights, who gets in these cul-de-sacs arguments or makes fun of you know people or gets the left all stirred up, right. about a crazy thing that's not important. So then that finally, and I'm getting windy. That's all right. My COVID <laughs> derangement. <laughs> um, finally, you get to the question, well, that what is Trump going to do? Is he Trump 2.0 where he says, you know what? I'll never again trust those SOBs like James Comey or Anthony Fauci. I understand the deep state now. Uh, when I'm in there, I'm going to hit the ground running. I'm going to get a team that understands the swamp. I'm not going to get involved with all of these psychodramas. I know the media is going to hate me. I accept that. But I'm going to get tough. I don't have one moment to detour. And so they want a person that tough, but they do not want someone, the Republicans don't want someone when they're walking and the news says that the president just, you know, did something. Right. It's, it's, it's irrelevant. So that's where we are. I was trying to be non-committal or neutral and because I don't know how we all feel, but when I give lectures, when I'm invited to speak, I should say, at the end of the, the lecture, I always ask, so how many are for the Trump agenda? Everybody is. And then should Donald Trump run? And that response is more mixed. These are hardcore mm -hmm. conservatives. Right. Victor, uh, on that very point, I, met, I talked about the Georgia elections, and I received some data yesterday uh, about the turnouts from the primaries. So again, Trump's uh, Donald Trump's uh, candidate, former Senator uh, Sonny Perdue, who uh, lost the special elections in January, uh, and this is where it all you know does Donald Trump own the two lost Senate seats from January? And I think the data lends itself to that case. 
there were 400,000, according to these studies, 400,000 uh, disenfranchised, so to say, that's in quote, conservatives who did not vote in January of uh, 2021 uh, and those special elections. And just a very small number of them would have made a difference. But there was a real effort to uh, energize Republican voters in the last year. I think Joe Biden did a lot to help energize that. And comparing apples and, and apples, the primaries from 2018 and the primaries in 2022 showed nearly uh, like a 98% increase in Republican turnout and significant new numbers of uh, registered Republican voters among uh, a black Hispanic uh, community. So anyway, um, interesting, in interesting data. I think I'm going to write about this and uh, we can talk about it next time. But I think the data lends itself a little bit to the, again, to the disappointment of what happened in Georgia in those elections and Donald Trump's uh, a role in it. Um, that may yeah. be connecting a dot too far. But. No, I, I saw the data. I think you're exactly right. I think it it reflects two realities that when he didn't go down to Georgia quickly and campaign and try to appeal on his record to suburban voters, especially women, at the same time, he harked and said that you couldn't trust the integrity of the voting maybe true maybe not but that was the bad that was a message to his hardcore supporter that was interpreted as no matter what you do your vote's not going to count so why get out and vote in a special election and that was a one-two punch where he lost he he didn't get 50 percent of the suburban voter in the suburbs around say atlanta and he lost the hardcore rural voter who would have voted for him, but was sort of so depressed by the general election and, the, and Trump's emphasis on fraud that they thought there was futile to even go out and take the effort. And he got blamed for that. Yeah. And uh, that was very important, Jack, because you win one of those two seats. We're talking about right. Georgia and the candidates were not centrist, old kind. Lunatics, you know, right? They were hardcore leftists. Right. They were well-financed. They had all sorts of PAC money to get the vote out. And what you essentially did is you turned over the U.S. government to the hardcore left because had just one of those two Republican candidates won, uh, the Senate would have been Republican and they could have stopped this nonsense. And instead, they won the Senate with a, the vote of Kamala Harris, and the rest is history. I had written a lot about that, and I had said, you know what, stop. I would said that on Fox News. You've got to stop replaying the election. Just take a hiatus. There's plenty of time to go back and adjudicate all the things that were done wrong, whether in terms of the Trump campaign or the inattention to changing the voting laws or the, the, some real stories of irregularities. There's plenty of time, but right now at this moment, does everybody understand you're gonna lose control of the US government? You're gonna turn right. it over to the hardest left core bunch of zealots we've seen since the 1930s. So stop, and, and, and he didn't do that. And, yeah. for the, and a lot of data you'll see also, I think there's some stuff from Nevada. People don't change parties very often for an election, but we're, but when they do, 
pollsters often look at the trends. I think it's four to one that four times more Democrats are, are re-registering as Republicans than Republicans right. are re-registering as Democrats. So wow. all of these little things in the air are telling us that this could be 1994 or 2010 or 1938, a, a radical realignment. I mean, radical. And if I don't think the Democrats understand that dwelling on Roe v. Wade or talking about banning nine millimeter hand right. your job right. it's not going to do it right. you've got to tell the American people you're hurting on inflation and this is what I'm going to do before the election you're, this is what, how I'm going to get you know pumping out of the strategic oil reserve is not going to do it yeah, but, we just as we discussed I don't think on this podcast another one he says Americans are comfortable financially yeah. if, if he's, he's He's such a liar. Oh, yeah. hey, he Victor. Could, if he could finish the wall and say, this is the Biden wall. The right. Top, yeah. Right. All he had to do was say, you know what? Trump fixed an existing wall. And he did. He didn't, he didn't get a lot done. He couldn't with the opposition on the new wall. But the Biden wall is all brand new area. But he won't do that. Yeah. And so he's going to go down and he's going to destroy the Democratic Party for a generation. Yeah. And they deserve it. And it's going to be welcome news to the majority of Americans because these people, again, I'll just finish with that refrain, they don't care. They simply don't care about people. Right. Well, James Buchanan's legacy will be, uh, look, he's happy about Joe Biden. That's probably the only person. <laughs> and he's dead. Hey, Victor, that's about all the time we have. I just want to read one quick comment as and. And our listeners, many listeners, go to uh, Apple Podcasts. Some listen on Google Play, Stitcher, and, and other platforms, wherever you listen. Thank you. If you listen on justthenews.com, that's where this podcast, that's what where we call home. That's great. Or Victor's website, you can listen to it there, too. But um, lots of people leave uh, rate the show. It's a nearly five-star rating that we have, and that's because of Victor's uh non-foggy brilliance every episode and victor here's one comment we do read them it's from someone titled uh, invest issues uh it's all one word but that's what it looks like living national treasure the japanese declare their artists and and state living national treasures during their lifetime to not Oh boy, Victor, I got to start this. I think what someone's, there's too many typos in this thing. Maybe you, have my, COVID, say, you, you have my COVID arrangement. No, well, no, I, whoever typed it, whoever typed it right have COVID <laughs> fingers, but they want to nominate you. Like this Japanese tradition of declaring someone a national, a living national treasure. And if that the living part, I don't feel like I'm living right now, but if I am, I, I, I'll take that. Yeah, well, your ghost is doing a good job. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's 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 a kind that's uh, a kind high honor for how much you you uh, you mean to this listener, and I think to most listeners. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So, hey, Victor, thanks. I know we we recorded uh, two podcasts today. Again, we're recording on Jan Saturday, and you did this with jet lag and still recovering. I'm, I'm waiting yeah. for the magic listener, Jack, who, who emails and says, Victor, I had six weeks of the bizarre neuropathy and 
tingles and limbs going to sleep and dizziness and neuropathy, all the stuff that you had and no energy. And then guess what? I took this pill and I woke up. Well, I had a dream like that's why I'm reporting it. Well, I, I'm turning I into feeling Eeyore, we're... Weiner, but it, this is the weirdest thing I've ever had. Well, look, this is a purgatorial uh, uh, last couple of weeks. There's no yeah. question, no question about it. I've been five days and I've been home 10, so, but that's mm-hmm. recklessness and stupidity on my part. Put your feet up. All right, thanks thanks to all our listeners for, for listening, and we'll, uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.